invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. Judges 11. As you're turning there, I will uh, remind you of something we mentioned a few weeks back. The, the judges are sometimes referred to what, what uh, uh, theologians, what Bible scholars might refer to as uh, Christological types. They're, they're types for the Christ. The judges each in their own way, it, uh, exemplify, they typify, hence the word type, they typify some aspect of God's salvation. A type is something we see in the scriptures. It's usually a repeated pattern that, that lays the groundwork for us to understand salvation. So we saw a few weeks ago the very unexpected salvation that came through uh, uh, Deborah, uh, when, when, while well, she was a judge, the very unexpected way that salvation came. And it prepares us for the unexpected nature of Jesus, the final, ultimate Savior. Unexpected that he would come so humbly. Unexpected that he would die the way he died. And of course, unexpected that he would come back from the grave. A very unexpected salvation. The judges are types for the Christ. They, they foreshadow, they create for us a right understanding of how God saves. What we also find in the book of Judges and in the text we're going to be looking at today, that we have not just types in the, for the Christ, but we have types, we have examples that typify human behavior. And in fact, this morning, we're going to see four human reactions, four human responses to salvation. Four ways that we human beings can despise the salvation that comes from God. And we're going to see how they typify human response to salvation. We're going to break these four into two groups of two. If you are a note taker, the two broad groups, the two big points are this. We have, in, 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 uh, uh, through verse 28, we have salvation despised by the unsaved. Salvation despised by the unsaved. Now, if you are a note taker, I'm going to suggest that you put the word unsaved in quotation marks, and you'll see why a little later. If you're not a note taker, well, in your brain, put the word unsaved in quotation marks. And if you're not doing it on paper and not doing it in your brain, then wake up and join us. You need to be doing one of those two. All right? All right. And then the second point, so we're going to see two groups that fall into that category of salvation despised by the unsaved. And then in part two of the text today, we're going to see salvation despised by the saved. And I'm going to suggest that saved also belongs in quotes. And you'll see why, I hope. Salvation despised by the unsaved, salvation despised by the saved. With that uh, uh, kind of a setting for where we're headed, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Lord, through your Spirit, lead us into understanding the book of Judges rightly. Help us to see uh, both the salvation that it typifies, the way that you save, the manner in which you come and rescue people, but help us also to see ourselves in the text and the many ways that we can despise your salvation and help us to turn away from that and back to the Savior, back to him, loving him, not despising him, embracing him, not rejecting him, because we see in the text that despite the way we treat him, nevertheless, he saves us. And so we rejoice in that. We hope to see that this morning, and we ask that you'd show it to us. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
I'm actually going to back up and start at the end of chapter 10 just to help set the, 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 the help us get the setting of what's going on because we're going to see 11 opens up with this kind of this call to arms and we're not going to know why if we don't start back. So I'm going to start in 1017 and start reading there. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the, and, and the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to, uh, one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. <clears throat> so war is threatened, and they need a leader. They need a savior. They need one who can lead them and ride out and defeat their enemies on their behalf. And so now we pick up with, <clears throat> with our main text here in chapter 11. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but... He was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also, and, and the, the town is not named after him. He's named after the town. He's named for the hero that, for the town once established. And Gilead's wife <clears throat> also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall, have, uh, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. <clears throat> After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, uh, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and Yahweh gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, uh, 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 The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And stop there and take a look at this first group of people, this first subgroup in our uh, text this morning. <clears throat> we have said they fall into the category of, of salvation despised by the unsaved. These are uh, people in need of salvation, and they have despised the one who could potentially save them. I might call this subgroup maybe a, 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 a point 1A, this subgroup maybe the, the pre-saved despisers. The pre-saved despisers. Because as we're going to find out, as the text unfolds, they're going to be saved. Uh, Jephthah is going to win the battle against the Ammonites. Their, their desire to be protected from their enemies is going to be granted. And yet what we find here is that initially they despise Jephthah. He's a bastard. He's the son of a prostitute. He's an illegitimate child. And so his brothers drive him out of town. He holds the elders responsible. So presumably at some point he appealed to the authorities going, really, do my brothers have a right to do this? And the elders probably took the brother's side and said, yeah. And he leaves town. They despise him. You know, we are reminded 
that the ultimate final savior was despised on these same grounds. John 8, verse 41, John records for us that the Pharisees were mocking Jesus on the grounds of his illegitimate birth. They had gotten word of the fact that he was that, that his mother was pregnant before they were married. And they had caught wind of the fact that Joseph knew the baby could not possibly be his and had planned to leave Mary. They knew that Joseph was not Jesus' father. And in a debate and in an argument with Jesus, they turned to him in, in mock a comment and say, well, we know who our father is. Digging at Jesus' illegitimate birth. Here we have the people of Gilead despising the one who could save them because of his illegitimate birth. And we see it uh, typify human response and human behavior toward the one who could save them. Let's set them aside for just a moment and continue in the text, looking at the next group. Uh, if that group, if I call them the pre-saved despisers, this next group we might call the, devo- the devoted despisers. The devoted despisers. Let's pick up again in verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messenger of Jephthah, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land uh, from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Uh, These are rivers that are boundaries. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen, and they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jehaz and fought with Israel. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then Yahweh, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And you, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that, the, that Yahweh, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? 
while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in uh, Aor and its villages, and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not deliver uh, them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Yahweh the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. We see here a second category of despisers, a second group who despise the possibility of salvation. This group doesn't really know that they need salvation. They're not aware that they're a danger. They see themselves as the bigger, more powerful force. They see themselves as the ones in control of the situation. But the man of God, Jephthah, warns them. He recounts for them the history of how Israel came to be on the land. And he tells them, listen, we once gave you guys an opportunity to live with us at peace, to, try, to, to respect our God, to believe that he was in control. And you didn't take it. And so our God gave us what he had promised us. And you see there at the end, a little nudge. You want to come back and take it? Well, then let your God do so. If Chemosh, your God, can give it to you, great. More power to you. But we are trusting in Yahweh, our God. We are trusting in the one who is the God of Israel, who is the only real, true God. And so he says, listen, you don't know what you're getting into. You don't know what you're messing with. Do you not recall what happened to those in the past who objected, who opposed the people of God? Those who oppose Yahweh pay the ultimate price. And so we have in this first half of the text two different groups that despise salvation. The first group, despising Jephthah, eventually repents. They eventually turn. And are saved. The second group is intransient. They will not repent. They stick to their position. And as you might imagine, we're going to see they perish. They are lost. This is why I suggested that the word saved needed to be, or unsaved needed to be in quotes. For while both of these groups are outside of the people of God, are outside of the visible church, are in need of salvation, ultimately one group is saved and the other group is not. Having despised salvation, the people of Gilead turn to the one who can save them and they make him Lord over their city, Lord of their lives and are saved. The second group will not humble themselves, will not repent, and are lost. We have the pre-saved despisers and the devoted despisers. The next group of two people, I said we, would, we could can think of them as the, the, the saved who despise their salvation. Again, the word saved is going to be in quotes. Let's take a look at these groups, picking up in verse 29. <clears throat> Then the spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, now let's just stop here. 
We've seen before where the, the, the writing of the ancient Hebrew writers tend to uh, say a lot in a little. They tend to summarize a lot in just a few words. And what we're to recognize here is what today we might call a, a foxhole deal, a foxhole bargain with God. They've gone to war. Jephthah has taken up the battle, and he's now he's been pursuing. It's easy. When the Ammonites are over there, it's easy to stand tough and, and be brave. But now he's toe-to-toe with the Ammonites, and he's a little scared. And he now makes a deal with God. And we uh, uh, pick up there in verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand... Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be yours. It shall be Yahweh's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And Yahweh gave them into his hand. And he struck them from uh, uh, Arori to the neighborhood of, of Minith, 20 cities. And as far as uh, uh, Abel Kiramim, uh, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father... You have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity and I, may, and, and, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And and at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. In this portion here, we see... Uh, uh, one of the saved. In fact, the man who was earlier in the text, the Savior himself. He's among the people of God. He's a believer in Yahweh, the true God. He's not a follower of the Baals. He is not a follower of Moloch or Asherah or Chemosh or any of these other surrounding gods. He's not trusting in himself. He's not bragging about himself. Yet something interesting happens. First of all, let's deal with the kind of the broad strokes of what happened. Is this really a human sacrifice? And I would argue that it is. That the simplest, most natural way to read the text is to understand this as a human sacrifice. That he did, in fact, kill his daughter. And so we are aghast. We're sitting here going, really? What's going on with this? Why is this in the Bible? How can it be that a man of God would do this? 
And I will remind us, and it's amazing how often we have to be reminded of this. The Bible is the only his book back, you know, from this time period, historical book from this time period, that actually portrays its heroes accurately, truthfully, in all of their fallenness, in all of their failures, in all of their brokenness. Are we aghast at what Jephthah did? But aren't we kind of used to it at this point? Does not Moses sin and Noah sin and Abraham sin and David sin? Don't they all have horrible failings? Don't they all commit terrible sins? At no point does the text say that Yahweh wanted this, that he called for this, that he approved of this. And in fact, the Pentateuch is very clear. The God of Israel abhors human sacrifice. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. He abhors adultery. David still slept with Bathsheba. He abhors murder. And there's plenty of that that goes on here. The most natural way to read this text is to read it as though it's a sacrifice. So what's going on? What you have here is an account of one who trusted Yahweh, believed in Yahweh, but thought maybe Yahweh needed some goading. Maybe his grace, yeah, his grace can save me, but maybe I got to get his grace going. I, I, you know, uh, uh, nothing's impossible with God so long as I nudge him in the right direction. Nothing is impossible for God as long as I do my part. How many of us live that way? And what we see, because he cannot just fully rest in the Lord, because he cannot just leave it completely to the Lord, the joy of the Lord's salvation is sucked out of his life. I'm sure he's thankful for the salvation. I'm sure he's glad the Ammonites were defeated that he remains in his hometown, that he has the blessings that God gave, but he cannot reflect on that victory without also thinking about the tragedy of his daughter. He did something incredibly foolish. And because of it, the joy that should have accompanied salvation is lost, it's gone. It's taken away from him. How many of us suffer loss in the joy of our salvation because we try to do these same things, because we try to nudge God and get him to do his part, because we try to help him out, because we try to contribute something to the salvation, because we try to bring our little part to help out. And it takes, it, it, it pulls the joy out of our lives. How do we do it? We probably do it more like this. You know what, God? If I do this, will you? If I just commit myself, if I just beat down this sin in my life, will you do this out of the other thing? And then we're constantly, uh, uh, there's this anxiety there because we can't beat down the sin. We can't defeat it. 
that we keep trying in our own strength. And so now salvation becomes this arduous, joyless task of trying to do the part that we've promised to do, do that thing we committed to doing to help God out, to help God like us more, to help God save us more, so to be more gracious to us. And I would encourage all of us, yes, yes, the Lord does have things he calls us to do. Yes, there is obedience that is a necessary part of being a, a, a follower of Christ, a disciple. But that needs to come after we have rejoiced in the simplicity of salvation. Every so often, and I would say make it like 15, 20 times an hour, remind yourself that you are saved apart from anything you do. You are saved apart from any contribution you make. And let that free you. Let that be a a, a source of great joy. Let that be a reminder to take a deep breath and relax and bask in the grace of a God who saves just because he wants to save. We have seen over and over again in the book of Judges how God intervenes to save his people despite their terrible sin. And so it is with you and with me. Not because we nudged him. Not because we got him off from his throne to get busy. But just because he loves us. We pick up then in verse 1 of chapter 12 and we see the fourth and final group Jephthah despises his salvation, not because he's not saved, not because he does, but he despises it because of the way he marred it and ruined it for himself rather than just enjoying it. Now we see a group that despised salvation in a very different way. The men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites? And did not call us to go with you. We will burn your house over you with fire. Now, wait a second. When we read the first verse, they're called armed. We're thinking, okay, the Ephraimites are going to come help fight the Ammonites. No, they're going to come fight Jephthah. They're going to come attack Jephthah. They're going to tear him down and ruin him and kill him. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and Yahweh gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim. Because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? When he said, no, they said to him, well then, say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. So what's going on here? 
If you've been with us through this study of Judges, you know that this is the second time we have seen the Ephraimites behave in this manner. After the war is over, after the battle is over, the Ephraimites come to the victor, the leader of Israel, and say, why didn't you let us participate? What did we see last time? It was, uh, they, they came to Gideon and said, we wanted to be part of that. That was a glorious victory. We want some of that glory. And of course, Gideon said, oh, no, you guys have plenty of glory. Don't worry about it. You're good on the glory scale. This time we see the same thing. They come to Jephthah. We want some of that action. We want to be heroes. We want to look good. We want to go down in history as having been a part of the salvation that God provided. And this time, God through Jephthah brings upon them the destruction that that demands. They are not satisfied with the protection that's been granted them. They are not satisfied with the fact that God has, through Jephthah, turned back the threat. They are not satisfied that salvation has been secured apart from them. They demand to play a role in the salvation. Now, we saw a moment ago that Jephthah thought he needed to play a part in God's salvation. He needed to make that deal with God to prompt God, probably hoping that, you know, it was a cow or a goat that would come meet him at the door, and probably not betting on his daughter doing it. But nevertheless, he prompted it. He did it. But we saw in Jephthah that he ultimately rests in the Lord and trusts the Lord. This group, they're not okay with the salvation that's provided. Jephthah accepted the way God saved them. They're not going to. No, they're angry that they didn't get to be a part of it. We must add to the salvation. We must share in the glory of the salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is why Paul and and others throughout history have gone to great lengths to warn us against doing that. What does Paul say to the Galatians? If anyone tries to add anything to Christ and the salvation that comes through him alone, let him be cursed, let him be anathema, let him be cut off, let him be damned. It is that serious. When you try to add to the grace of God your own good works, when you try to then bask in the glory of the salvation because of what you have brought to the table, you have no salvation at all. It's not that you're still going to be saved and just you got it a little bit wrong. It's the moment you think that you play a role in it, the moment you are adding to and getting part of the glory of the salvation, you have forfeited salvation because you don't really know where it comes from and how it's obtained. And here we see a people who say, let me do a part. This is why throughout history, the faithful church has taken a strong stance. There's a huge difference between being saved by grace so that we might then go do good works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, and being saved by grace and our good works. That second formula is no gospel at all. 
We are not saved because God graciously enables us to do enough good works by which we then merit his favor. We are saved because he put on us the good works of Jesus. And the moment we try to pull that away, get that out of the way because my glory is being hidden, you need also to see what I'm doing. The moment we try to move that, to make room for us to also shine through, we lose it completely. We have in this text four groups of people, four different entities, and we see how they interact with the Savior. We see how they interact with God's salvation. There are those who initially despise the source of salvation, but then repent and receive it and are saved. It is the story that goes back through the ages and comes forward into time. We're reminded, I referenced earlier, that the Pharisees despised Jesus on the same grounds that Gilead despised Jephthah. But then we are reminded, John tells us at the book end of his gospel, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, became a believer. He repented and came to Christ. Paul is a Pharisee. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, a leading Pharisee, a bright star, a rising star among the Pharisees. And he repents and comes to the one he once despised. In Acts 15, Luke notes that there were many Pharisees at the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council was a gathering of the leadership of the Christian church. These men were leaders in the Christian church, those who once despised Jesus, now saved by him. If you're here this morning, you have despised Jesus. You've despised the idea that miracles are possible. You've despised the idea of the virgin birth. You've despised the possibility of a resurrection from the dead. You can repent, and he will receive you as you receive him. He comes always willing, always ready to save those who will receive him. Despising him doesn't cause him to despise you, not if you repent of it. The unforgivable sin is not uh, 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 rejecting the Savior, the unforgivable sin is rejecting the savior, savior forever. Finally, to the end. Repent. Come to the one who loves those who once despised him and saves them. We saw in here a group that was warned, was told that they're at risk if you stand against the work of God, if you try to oppose his church, his people, we saw there in the Ammonite, uh, Ammonites that if you, the Jephthah warns them, this is how God works with those who stand in his way. You will be destroyed. If you make peace with us, if you accept our God and come to terms and accept his place to rule, you'll be fine. But they continued in their despising. They persisted in despising salvation. They, just, they persisted in despising and they were lost. We must warn those people. What's it look like today? Much of what's happened over the last 
10, 12, 15 years has been played out on the ground of the question of sexuality. The church is trying to take our freedom. They're trying to take our land. We, can't, we want to roam free in sexuality the way we want to do it, the way we see it. And the church is trying to, to take that land from us. And we must continue to warn them. When you defy the boundaries that God has set up, when you defy the places that he's given you freedom to roam, you are at grave danger. We must warn them as these people were warned. We saw then the one who is truly a person of God, Jephthah, despised the idea that salvation could work completely apart from him and cost himself the joy of his salvation by believing he had to work for it, had to pay God for it, had to pitch in something toward it. And then finally we saw the group who could not accept the fact that the glory belonged to another, had to share in that glory, had to have some part of it, We see here four different ways that humans respond to God's salvation. Four ways we despise his salvation. But you know what we see over the top of all of it? is a God who continues to save. How did it close out? Jephthah continued to judge Israel. He held that place. God did not abandon him. God did not turn him aside despite what he did. What are we going to pick up next week? If you've been following with us, you kind of know the pattern. You know what's going to happen. We're going to see that they fall back into sin, and yet God then returns to save them, to provide for them, to pull them out. We see over the top of these four types of human ways of despising salvation a God who continues to save, a God who continues to bring people to himself, a God who continues to work in humanity. Let us learn from this. Let us go and rejoice and just relax. Believing that God's going to do it. God's going to save us. God's going to bring it to fruition in his time, in his way, in his uh, 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 decision. His details, he'll work them all out. What a joy we have when we do that. You know, the reminder we have is the table before us. We struggle with the idea that salvation is still out there waiting. We keep thinking that we've got to do something to prompt it and get it going. And yet we have in this table a reminder. Our God knows that we struggle in this way. He knows that we don't believe it's going to come and it's going to happen. He knows that we keep thinking we have to do something to nudge the process along. And so he comes to us here and says, no, 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 no. I brought you in. You didn't bring me in. You didn't call me to your table. I called you to mine. This is my table, the Lord's table. I invite you to come here and to fellowship with me. As a reminder, a practical, concrete thing, things we can touch and smell and taste and hold so that we're reminded of the concrete reality a historical reality of the death of Christ that guarantees a 
historical, absolutely certain, concrete future salvation in him. And in this, he says, rest. Just be mine today. Don't try to add anything to it. Don't try to impress me. Just accept what I offer. My son, broken for you, bled out for you, dead for you, but coming again for you also. Father, thank you for sending the Son. Thank you for reaching out in love and saving us. Not when we had done anything to merit it, not when we had even asked for it, but while we were still your enemies. Thank you for sending him to bring us in to your family. Lord, we ask now that you would take these simple elements and make them real in our lives, real application of Christ to us. Let us know that we have really met with him this morning. Let us know that we really are his. Let them be for us the sign and seal that you intended of your love, of your grace, of your protection, of your salvation that rests upon us apart from anything that we have done. Let us rejoice in that this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.